Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media. I'm Beth Milligan. I'm a journalist here in Traverse City. And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber, and I am a pastor and an ethics teacher, and I am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters. The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Chart Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the creative culture and outdoor lifestyle journal of Northern Michigan. So today we are drinking a James Street Brown Ale from Ludington Bay Brewing Company. And this is described as a smooth, dark American brown ale with a lacy, ooh, lacy tan head that is lighter tasting than it looks. Lacy? Is that? Lacy. Lacy <laughs> I've tan never heard that description before. Nor, I can nor see it I. though. Like you can kind of see the lace and the foam. Yeah. Okay. So I've been to Ludington a couple of times. I love Ludington. And I'll be honest, as you were reading that and I was sipping this, I just had this vision of kind of walking toward the bay in Ludington with the breeze in my face because the beach there is gorgeous. And somehow it just fit. Are you, you wearing been- skinny jeans? Yeah, wearing- <laughs> skinny jeans. Have you been to the brewery there before? I have. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, I really, really enjoy this. And I think that what I've come to appreciate about beers like this is that they do elicit, they kind of transport you as soon as you taste it to a certain place. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, because it's a Brown, I tend to be transported to like a more cozier moment. Earthy place. Yeah. Yeah. More cozier (laughs) moment in my life. Um, And that's just what I'm thinking of. I don't know. I'm picturing Brown's bearskin rugs in my mind for some reason. Mm. Yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice sipper. I don't often go darker with beers. I'm more of a light beer drinker, but yeah, when I do, it's something like a sip. I'm contemplative reading a book, maybe a fire. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a good yeah. thing. So yeah, that's the Ludington Bay James street brown ale. Yum. Welcome to season two, episode 10 of breaking the surface. I'm here with Taylor and Beth today as usual, and we're going to talk about mental health. And one of the reasons we are is just because I think all three of us have noticed that we're just living in a time where this is becoming a problem, not like it wasn't before, but it is significantly rising. And this isn't just statistically, but this is anecdotally as we've been thinking about our friendships and our lives. So I had a couple of stories that came to mind that I think have been kind of just simmering in the background today that will lead us into this conversation today. Last summer, I was doing some teaching downstate at kind of a youth conference. They do week-long gigs. And I was there on Wednesday and Thursday. And the staff was exhausted. And they had taken a year or two off because of COVID. This was their first time back. And they said, the kids are falling apart, guys and girls, like literal panic attack in bathrooms. They said, our week, we are frazzled. We're three days in. And this is constant. But one person there who was kind of functioning as a counselor said, It was not unusual for her to be talking with one student and get a phone call that another student is having a panic attack in their room. And they said it was unprecedented. They've been doing this for 20 some years, just whole new territory. And then I interact with the school where my son attends, which is Traverse City Christian School. And one of the things they've noticed too is just that kids struggling with anxiety and depression and fear and loneliness. And it's just it risen so high to the surface, their experience is very similar just throughout the school year. Like almost like you plan this into the fabric of the day, you're going to need to sit down and work with kids. I'm actually going to speak at their last chapel of the year. And they, they want me to talk about kind of how to deal with these kind of things as kids are going into the summer and kind of losing the support system of school. And then just reading more and more articles Um, And recognizing that even in myself and within my own family, my wife and my son, that I think the last couple of years have really taken a toll in some ways that were obvious in the moment. Other ways, I think we're unpacking. And I just thought it might be good for us to um, talk about that today. And Taylor, I think you said before we started recording this, that you had some things you were thinking about along these lines also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, you could attack 
this from a million different angles. Um, and being as we just came off of a Twitter conversation, I'll look at it for, through like a social media angle, technology angle, phone angle, um, is that I was at, let's see, this would have been, so my family does like a big 4th of July gathering, kind of camp out each year um, at my parents and my grandparents. And I was watching this interaction between my uncle and one of my younger cousins. And so she was a teenage girl and the phone is essentially like a body part. And my grandparents live right on the water. Relatives from uh, my uncle's side of the family had brought their boat out and they were parked out in deeper water and they were going to go tubing. And to get out there, you actually had to take a kayak like out to the boat. So my uncle just suggested hey, we're going to go out tubing. Maybe you should leave your phone behind or it could fall in the water and you wouldn't have it. In the meltdown that I like witnessed from someone who's otherwise not um, prone to meltdowns in that way, they don't have any um, like issues outside of what I was just experiencing Mm -hmm. and, and watching them was this complete and like utter inability to even fathom what it would be like not to have that phone and that access digitally to her friends. Mm. And I, it was just something that really stuck with me is here's this 15 year old girl who you can have really reasonable and, and nice conversations with could not even put herself in her dad's shoes of like what he was trying to explain is either you don't have your phone for an hour or you risk dropping it in the lake and then you don't have it for good. And I buy your phone for you. So you might not have one again. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. And there was, there was just a disconnect there where it just, it didn't make sense of like, it was as though she was leaving a lung behind or a heart behind. And I, I was just like really saddened by that. Um, I think at first I was confused, like how spoiled are you that you can't even understand like the importance of, of leaving your phone behind and that maybe your dad wants some uninterrupted time with you while you two ride out on a kayak or whatever. And I just continue to think about it. And I was like, I don't know that that's her fault as an individual, as much as it is just the norm that's been produced by society. And so for her, the society would be like her middle or high school experience and how you, you need to document and you need to communicate with people at all times. And you're never, disconnected from them because you have this, this way to communicate with them digitally. And where I've landed today is that I think this sad reality. And in that instance that I, that I just outlined is that what happens is when you're too attached to your technology or to your phone, and it's a part of you as you're supposed to be experiencing other things. So for her in this, in this example, it would have been kayaking and then going tubing and spending time with your other, your other family and having conversations is that you're trying to do two things at once and you don't actually end up really doing either. You're not having great quality, meaningful conversation with your friends online because you're also trying to experience the here and now with people that are living and breathing right in front of you. And then you're not interacting with them in a proper capacity either because you're constantly focused on your phone. So you're missing out on two things. And then I think about days where maybe I've woken up and I've just gone on like, a Twitter spree or a Facebook spree or even like a Netflix binge. And it's just been like a, a black hole that I'll go into for hours or for all day. Mm-hmm. And then you go to bed and you're like, I wasn't actually like a real person. <laughs> Was I? I'm a real boy. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that's what I thought of, excuse me, is that, um, I think that that's a really difficult place to exist for today's youth. And I don't envy that at all. Like I, I am relieved that I didn't have the option of having an iPhone, of having social media, of having all these different technologies at my fingertips as, as a kid when I was growing up, because I don't think I would have been able to handle it. And I also don't think that today's youth can handle it either. We're seeing it play out of how they're trying to handle it. And it's just not, it's not natural. I think that is really insightful, Taylor. we now have the technology where they have grown up in a world where they're constantly trying to be here and there. And as a result, they are neither fully here or there. And that takes a toll. I think, I mean, just yeah. understanding what you were describing, my own 
compulsivity issues with my phone as a 37 year old and trying to imagine our phones and our apps are designed to be addictive. They're designed to keep us engaged. Even like the little red alert that pops up when you get a Facebook, it's red for a reason. It triggers something in your brain. Like you want to get rid of that notification. We're like the bull and that's the flag. (laughs) (laughs) So, and it's, it's definitely impacted my life, not just in the things that you're talking about, like doom scrolling, but you know, I have definitely had with my, you know, (laughs) with, partners or whatever, like being more obsessed with what was happening in my phone than what's happening with, you know, someone I love or care about right in front of me and just being distracted. And I've seen it at family gap. I mean, you can see anytime you go to a restaurant with friends, whatever, if there's like a moment of dullness in a conversation, everyone subconsciously like <laughs> reaches for their phone. Cause we're so afraid of like that awkward moment of just sitting in silence. And so if I can barely grapple with that, how is an 11 year old or a 12 year old, a developing brain who is primed for addictive behavior supposed to handle it? And I think you're right. I'm so grateful that I didn't have, I was just on the tail end of, you know, social media, like my space, not to really date myself, but like friends or things like that <laughs> were just coming out when I was like in high school. So it wasn't like a big part of my high school experience. I had a phone, but it wasn't like the smartphones like today, um, you know, just texting friends or my parents or whatever. But the, the worrying thing, aside from just all of the connectivity and, and loneliness issues and not being fully present is one, the kind of damaging messages that you get from social media, particularly for girls, I think in terms of images of what you're supposed to look like and be like, um, they're very sensitive that age, you know, just anyone going through puberty is self-conscious about their body, but especially messages that like, you're not enough or you're not pretty enough, or here's what you need to do or eat or be like, um, you know, there's shows that are geared towards teens like euphoria that are very, very dark. Um, that kind of, in my mind, glamorize a lot of self-destructive behavior among teenagers. Um, and then also just having smartphones. I mean, kids have access to so much sexual content and not just hardcore pornography, but just they're being inundated with messages either from their peers or from Instagram of how they should look like, or from porn sites or whatever. There's no context to help them grapple that influx of information. And we know we've talked on shows, we know how addictive it is as adults. We know how damaging or addictive things like porn can be. Um, and if we struggle as adults, I just, my heart breaks for children trying to process this wave of information. And it's not surprising to me at all, uh, that they would be having so many issues with, without help to deal with that. Well, they learn pretty quickly. For example, the more risque of a thing that I post, the more engagement there is with that post. Sure. Ah, so this is the thing that gives me value and worth, apparently. This is mm-hmm. what makes people love and, yeah. and like me. If yeah. it's okay, I just wanted to share some just because I think it'd be helpful for people listening to have a little context for this. So there's a New York Times article that just came out called um, It's Life or Death, The Mental Health Crisis Among U.S. Teens. And I recommend just reading it for a lot of reasons, but I just want to share some quick statistics to put this in context. Um, In 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, a 60% increase from 2007. Emergency room visits by children and adolescents in that period also rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm. And for people ages 10 to 24, Suicide rates, which were stable from 2000 to 2007, leaped nearly 60% by 2018. Wow. The thing I thought, I mean, obviously- Wait, wait, that's 2018. That's pre-pandemic. That's pre-pandemic. So clearly the pandemic has from, and you could probably share, Anthony, some experience. I'm sure you know with having kids in school, but also being a teacher before. It's been pretty devastating. You talked at the beginning about that. The one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, which I thought was so interesting- is that in this article, it also says that the way the the risks to teenagers have changed so drastically. So in three decades ago, the greatest public health threats to teenagers were binge drinking, drunken driving, teenage pregnancy, and smoking. Those have all plummeted. Those are not Hmm. things that are a problem for teenagers. It's not that they're not using, they clearly still drink and use some substances, but it is not like the past. It is Right now, they're more likely to be educated. They're less likely to get pregnant. They're less likely to use drugs. They're less likely to die of an accident or injury. So you think, wow, that's great. But the trends are going the opposite way in anxiety, depression, and suicide. 
So that does to me raise a really interesting question of we have all of these things that used to be really harmful to teens. They're not there in the same numbers before, but the mental health issues are off the charts. Mm. Yeah. It's, um, that has to be just due to social media and technology and the access that these students have to one another. And so they're, they're not, um, they're not as easily influenced or maybe able to value, I think, the positive influences in their life, um, maybe in the same way that I had the opportunity to. Um, because the if I spend an hour with a relative and I learn something from them, I even see this play out in, in, in my life where there's times where I'll spend um, you know weekends with individuals that I know have a lot to teach me, whether that's a, a father, a father-in-law, a grandparent. And I will have in some ways cheated prior to those activities because I'll look up like, how do you do something? And I've mentioned, I think this before, but if I'm, if I'm going hunting or if I'm going to um, process wood, then I'll be like, well, how do you start a chainsaw? And I'll like Google it real quick. And what I did is I stole the opportunity to learn something from a real live person. Mm. And I think that it's really cool that we have these opportunities to um, educate ourselves by by searching and finding different resources online, but you really can't, there's just like this wholesomeness to learning from other people and understanding why you have value from other people that matter in your life that can't be replaced um, by what technology shows us. And that's not even including the flip side, which is I think that these higher rates of anxiety and depression and suicide um, are probably directly related to negative interactions that students are having or youth are having with one another on social media that you can't escape in the same way that, that I could. So I would go home and I would go in the woods or I would spend time with my brothers. And I knew that my brothers liked me um, because I was older than most of them. And, and they were really enjoying their time with me because I was cool. And even <laughs> if I wasn't cool at school, which rhymes, then at least I was cool at home because I was a little bit older than them and I could show them how to do things. Were you also um, too legit to quit? There were times, yes, where I was too legit to quit. Uh, mostly just too cool for school. Um, yeah. But now you, you're just so in tuned to people's critiques of you. And I think that that kind of goes back as well to um, the story I'd shared about my cousin is there was just other moments throughout that weekend where they're sending selfies constantly. And that was their form of communication was just like sending a selfie and they would change the face facial expression they were using to like <laughs> in some way display how they were, how they were feeling in that moment um, as they're playing Uno with grandma. And it's like, <laughs> like what, how, have, how have we gotten here? And um, I can now see after having spent more time with um, people of the, of generation below me, like why it is so detrimental. And I think at the beginning of the pandemic, what immediately happened is when we saw school closures and things like that, um, there were people that were predicting how detrimental this was going to be to kids' mental health when we have to shut schools down and we have to avoid social contact. And I always believed those people. There was never a, a moment where I um, didn't believe what they were saying, but I, I did wonder about the timing and how quickly they were willing to dismiss um, what, it, you know, what was a deadly disease for um, wanting to keep schools open or, or for their kid to still be able to go to basketball practice or whatever. And so while I disagreed with some of that, um, I think that their predictions were true. And now we're at this tail end in 2022 of this pandemic and kind of having to revisit all the issues that this meeting of technology and COVID kind of caused, which I think is what the article is saying is a legit crisis. Okay, so I, I'm actually, great thoughts, Taylor. I'm going to agree and disagree with the common thoughts about the schools dismissing. I don't think the issue was that schools didn't meet. I think that the issue is that schools were in better environments for kids than their homes were. And I think school was the source of stability. Mm. School was the, was the place where you were seen. School was, the, and I don't mean for every kid, you know, schools are the same. There's bullies and people who are picked on. So I, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I, I don't think the issue was so much that they didn't get to see their friends and be at school, but that the alternative at home was life sucking rather than life giving. And I, I say that with a heavy heart, but I, I think that is sadly 
becoming the norm more than we realize because it's not just kids getting pulled into technology. It's parents also. But we also live in a culture where lots of families, you're two-parent working families just to pay the bills, Mm -hmm. and you come home exhausted at night. And maybe school was a great place for your kids to be because people invested them in a way you you just have a hard time doing in the evening. Or so now school's out and both of you are working. What do you do? Like, so some of it is logistical. Mm -hmm. But I think we might be surprised for how many kids going spending that much time at home was detrimental. I think I definitely saw reports. I mean, it, it is heartbreaking to think, but um, like, yeah, you're saying not just people, parents who are working, but situations where there's domestic abuse yeah. or yep. sexual abuse at home and then being trapped in the house all day with your abuser. And then yep. often compounding that even further is that the parents are, you know, we as adults are also experiencing pandemic stress. So there's job loss, there's the anger, you know, so if you are in an abusive situation, you've got people who are dealing with extreme uh, emotions and stress themselves. Mm-hmm. It just compounds. And also we saw that drinking went up substantially among adults across the country during the pandemic. All of those things are just a recipe for a really hard home life. And also, you know, frankly, schools often provide and and still try to at least here because of federal funding, but you know, food, like just food security for kids during a pandemic and knowing that there's a safe place that they can go eat or get help from teachers. Um, I think, yeah, that definitely seemed like it was really challenging for a lot of kids to be at home that long. My wife and I found we had to be super purposeful. This was when the pandemic first hit and like everything shut down for a couple of months, right? We had to be really purposeful at home. We just had one son at home at the time. We tried to play games almost every night, even if it was just an hour to connect. Or I think we watched all of psych again, probably together (laughs) and laugh together. Um, And he was doing schoolwork during the day, but trying to figure out those rhythms of connection. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying it was easy because it was so easy to get into a funk of your own. Right. But it was, there was something about um, it. It didn't even have to be a lot. It just had to be something that said, I see you. I'd like to spend time with you. I value your presence and you would, you just enjoy some time together. And I'm not saying we were perfect in our handling of it, but our, I think my sense with our son is that he didn't like being away from his friends, but it was more of an annoyance than an inconvenience than it was something that really set him back. And then he would get on in the evenings with probably close to up to 10 friends and they'd all find a video game online that they would play together. And I, we would hear him laughing for hours from mm-hmm. downstairs, talking with his friends, which is something I couldn't have done when I was a kid, A, because I was Mennonite, <laughs> and B, because that kind of technology didn't exist. So some of those things happened. But I, I know for a lot of kids, it was a time of real withdrawal and almost like an imploding. So I want to add this. There's two words that come to my mind as we talk about it, and that's the importance of stability and the importance of identity. Like, first, what are the stable structures around me? And then secondly, why do I matter? Like Beth, and maybe I'm interested in hearing you speak to this a bit uh, as someone uh, we were talking before we started recording that I think guys experience the reality of social media and its impact on identity a little differently than girls do. Though I, I'm noticing even as a 53 year old, I think I'm 53 now. Uh, I am. I, <laughs> we'll fact check I have something I've noticed recently, <laughs> but I do think it's a different experience. Yeah. But the other thing, and I noticed this last summer when I was downstate doing that teaching, the thing that came up in conversation was that kids came out of homes with very angry people in them. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily anger um, projected at them. Keep in mind the the pandemic hit coming out of an election cycle that might've been one of the most divisive in recent history, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just the election, but now it's all the pandemic policies and the way that went partisan. What they were discovering was that kids found everyone around them unsafe. They did not want to talk about anything that would potentially be political or divisive because such strong emotions just lashed out from kids. And the question they were asking was, where are kids learning this? Mm. From mom and dad. Mm. And so you're in a home, and this was this was coming from both sides. I'm not yeah. making this a partisan issue, but they were sequ- Questered in some ways in homes for months where, where their whole family is getting riled up and there's this us, them, they are evil people if they want you to do X or if they yeah. voted for X, not just 
we disagree, but they are bad. And then suddenly they were on a campus with uh, 150 other kids and their roommate is one of these evil people mm-hmm. and they melt down. Mm-hmm. Like they honestly feel like I'm stuck with someone who's a genuine threat to my existential health. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is bad, bad, bad. Like this is a lack of parental leadership mm-hmm. in terms of modeling for kids, what it looks like to be at peace in the midst of difficult times. And I, and that's where the stability thing comes in. I think kids' worlds got rocked as the adults in their lives um, re- drew lines in unfortunate places and demonized people that just made their kids feel unsafe everywhere they went. That's so interesting. And I had not thought about that. And I think that's really insightful and very true. I mean, when you were talking, I, I just thought about my own experience and we've talked before but, you know, like covering school board meetings with mass policies and vaccination policies and all these things that were happening and, you know, adults coming and screaming at each other. And then you've got a kid, a little kid in a mask going to elementary school is like right in the middle of it. And you've got, you know, parents telling them, don't let them make you wear a mask at school. And you just, uh, just yeah. the screaming's happening over their head. They want to suck your yeah. soul. Yeah. yeah. And the kid is just like my experience at least covering all these school meetings and also like interviewing students and covering classrooms and stuff is like the kids didn't care. You know, it was, right. it was all no, like, you're exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> that they were just like, okay, we have to wear a mask. We have to wear a mask. Like the kids are used to sort of school, like tells you the rules and you do it, whether it's wardrobe or class times yep. or whatever. They're like, okay, we'll just wear a mask. But then you have that insane vitriol around it. And then, yeah, I do see like, kids will either model it. Cause they've been like pressured by their parents. Like don't do this or, you know, tell them this, if they try to get you to do this or whatever. I, I had not thought about that, but I think that's a really yeah. great point. You would have, you, you know, you talk about the stability and so, um, and the domestic violence, which is, was, not, was another thing. I think we've mm-hmm. talked about, um, at least in our chats before about the increased rate of that. And that to me, um, is like sickening, saddening, and just infuriating because then what you realize is that if, if there's a, a child or even a partner and a spouse or whoever that's spending, say, 16 hours a day with someone when before they were only spending four, maybe two before work or school and two after. Um, and then you you could look at that situation. You're like, okay, so domestic violence rates were increasing. So all that means is that the more time people spent together, the more likely one of them was to be hit or assault, assaulted physically or verbally. And that's not how it's supposed to work. Like that wasn't when, the, that wasn't yeah. isolation's fault. Yes, exactly. Right. Like right. Abby and I, when we got married, she didn't, you know, come up to me and be like, Hey, so I know you're, you're, you're not going to hit me. Um, as long as we spend less than six hours a day together. <laughs> but if you hit me after we've spent 12, like I get it, I probably was a little bit too much, you know, after <laughs> that 12 hours, that's not how it's supposed to work. And that's exactly how it ended up. That's why those results increased. And that is the, the responsibility of the home is that they're not providing that safe environment. And then the confusion that you can throw a youth into of like, if, if you take the stance of, well, if your school requires masks, then that means that your teachers are evil. And so here's a student who has otherwise had probably great experiences with their teachers. I would think overall, most, I had great experiences with nearly all of my teachers. There was some outlying incidences, but, um, for those people that I was spending more time with than I was even spending with my parents to then be told that they're untrustworthy, um, would completely shatter your world because it's like, well, for one, I'm not at school right now. I'm stuck at home with my parents and someday I will be going back to school, but what am I supposed to do then? I have to go back and join those evil people. And, um, it's, it, it, it sets the current youth up for a big time failure. It, and I think part of the reason it happens is it is hard to figure out as parents, when you have strong opinions about things, how do you talk about them with your kids in a way that is insightful to your kids, walks them through the issue and sure, lead them to a conclusion. I don't care without demonizing someone like with giving someone else the best of intention. And it, and I don't mean to pick on either perspective because I, I heard really unhelpful things said from both sides. You know, for someone to say, you just don't love people if you don't wear a mask. Why would I assume that they don't love people? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're trying very hard to love people. We just disagree about how that looks. Mm-hmm. 
Meanwhile, I don't want someone to say to me, why were you a sheeple because you're so comfortable wearing the mask? Well, I happened to thought it was, I thought it was a way to love people, right? Right. So <laughs> ways to talk about it that kind of, um, that allows people with differences of opinion to not be this hostile force that if you're around them, you must put up your barriers and be very careful because they're out to get you. I think there's ways to disagree without doing that and disagree quite passionately without doing that. And that seemed to all fall apart. And I, I heard a lot of blame placed on COVID policies of, of isolation and quarantine and things like that for these types of things. But I tell you what, um, all that happened in isolation and quarantine was that the real loss bubbled up. Mm-hmm. It didn't make us a way we weren't before. It just highlighted who we are. And I, I think while there is no doubt that those things increase during that time, I think you can correlate events. There is no way that those things cause that to be present in people. There was something there already. And I, I'll go out on a limb and say that a lot of those cases where, where violence or abuse started to happen, I suspect it was happening in some fashion before. It just hadn't gotten to the level that it had at this point. And all of those things, I think, are, are opportunities for us to look not just at ourselves, but our society and ask, what is happening? Mm-hmm. That apparently when the going gets tough, this is what bubbles out of us. Yeah. And I think that self-reflection is really helpful to think about as adults, because I think, you know, when I was reading this, you know, Times article or sort of what we're talking about today with the, how much youth are struggling. Um, well, we're struggling, <laughs> you know, adults are yeah. struggling yep. too. And if we're struggling with things and I can only match, I think it stands out more with children because you look at an 11 year old who dies by suicide and you're like, how is that possible? Like, how could a child reach a point? of doing something like that. It's more shocking, but the reality is they're dealing with the same kinds of things that we are and they don't have the tools yet to to deal with them. So when I was thinking about the social media thing, like I think that's a two-sided coin, which was one coin is what they're encountering in their social media worlds, like actual content that they're seeing. And we talked about some of the ways that can be damaged everything from cyberbullying, unhealthy messages. The flip side of it is I think what is lost that is consumed by screen time. So this times article talk, for example, that federal, like the article actually says the rise of social media is complex in terms of how far they've been able to track that it's actually causing this mental health crisis. But what they did say is very clear in federal research data that teenagers as a group are getting less sleep. They're getting less exercise. They're spending less in-person time with their friends all of which is crucial for healthy development, especially as an adolescent. And then their result is that they're having more anxiety, depression, compulsive behavior, self-harm and suicide. And the article says, you know, this kind of raises the question of like, were these always issues inherent to adolescents that just went unrecognized Mm -hmm. before, or are they being over diagnosed now or just simply present now in a way that they weren't in the past. Um, But I think, you know, as an adult, a lot of those things are true for me too. You know, the more time I spend on my phone or, you know, watching Netflix all day, I'm not going outside and exercising. Um, I know Taylor, you and I have talked, I think we may talked on the show or maybe offline, but I don't think I'm talking out of school. We talked about like sleep issues and trying to get on track with sleeping. It's well documented looking at our screens and sending light signals to us. That's making it hard for us to sleep at night. I often wake up in the middle of the night and feel like I can't go back to bed and I just look at Twitter and it's like, I'm up for like two hours in the middle of the night. Mm. So I have all those same patterns and I did find in the pandemic that when I was feeling like I was going insane from a mental health perspective, I started hiking, I started being in nature and it was an immense release valve. Mm -hmm. It was being physically concrete in a world that I felt most of the time scared and isolated from that I couldn't be in safely. I realized I could be in it again. And I, so there's a genuine difference between virtual engagement with the world of physical engagement with the world. Yes. And, and I think, you know, there's so many like, uh, book like ready player one matrix. Like there's so much speculation about how we're just, our lives are becoming more and more virtual. And I think this is a perfect example of why we should be very careful about going in that direction, because I think we are real people who are meant to have real interactions with not only each other, but nature and our environment. 
Um, and I have found it to be really, and I have done studies. I, I did a paper for college about kids lack of time in nature and the psychological harm that has been unquestionably documented about that. So yeah, if I'm experiencing all these things again, as a 37 year old, why would an 11 year old who's on a screen all day, not seeing their friends, not going outside and exercising, not playing, not being in nature, not learning in a tactile way and getting all this damaging messaging while they're on their screens, why wouldn't they be going like crazy? You know, like we can't expect kids to handle that better than we are. Yeah. I have a, um, a little tool or a strategy that Abby and I need to get better about implementing, but I thought it was a, I don't know how it came to me one day. I I tend to have really great ideas, but um, (laughs) this one actually, I I came up with this idea and I was like, I'm going to see how, what she thinks of it. and, And if we should implement it is that, um, her and I get a very specific amount of time together. It's usually a couple hours in the evening. Um, we'll be watching some of our favorite shows or whatever. And it's funny because we'll be doing something like watching TV and I'll get pissed and she will as well. If I'm on my phone during that oh, time, same. I've like, had this fight with my partner yeah, too, which is yeah. just like really strange. Cause it's like, dude, it's one screen or the other, you know, like, um, <laughs> we're supposed to be doing something together, but that something together is like in no way involving conversation or us even looking at each other. But anyway, um, so what I came up with is because we also ran into this problem of there would be times where say we're watching a show or we're playing a game and then one of us is on our phone and I'll be like to Abby, put your phone down. And she might be like, Oh, well, I'm texting my sister and she's having some, you know, issues or something. And I'll be like, oh, well, I feel like a jerk. Or um, she'll say the same thing to me. Put your phone down and be like, actually, I just got a like a pretty big work email that like can't wait. So instead, what we do is we just say, is there anything when you catch the other person looking at their phone? Is there anything good on there? And that gives that person an opportunity to weigh what's happening on the phone with what's happening right in front of them. And it's in a non like threatening type of way. Where if we're watching a show and she's on her phone, I'll just be like, hey, is there anything good on there? And she'd be like, sorry, I'm on Instagram. And no, there's nothing like better than what we're doing right now. And so she put it down. And I, I think that's a maybe a halfway decent way of approaching life with because technology is not going away. Like I'm not going to yeah. I'm not going to get rid of my my phone. It serves me in so many ways, but I can figure out how to like better um, form the way that I'm using it. And I think that's it. Like, is there anything good on there? If I'm out on a hike and I'm looking at my phone instead, if somebody just asks me, hey, is there anything good on there? I have to be like, well, it's actually not better than like that flock of birds in that tree um, or the the turkey over there, the porcupine waving in the wind. Um, <laughs> that happened so, on my farm. That's yeah. an inside reference. Yeah. <laughs> so let's put, let's put the phone down. And again, I think it goes back to the story that I shared initially is if my cousin had been able to just say like, you know, there actually isn't anything better on my phone than paddleboarding across crystal clear water to a boat full of my other cousins where we're going to go tubing, then you get to be present. And I think that's one of the most health, most healthy things you can do is to be present. That's what some of the most effective people in life and in business are able to do. Not that business is the be all end all, but it's one, I think major common thing. And even for athletes is that they're present in the moment. Mm when you're present, you find success. And sometimes success means you find that kind of level of happiness that you should. I want to piggyback on that excellent point with just an observation about kids and mental health. I think a challenge for parents is to learn how to be present with kids at the kid's level. Because it's easy for us as parents to want the kids to be present at our level. Mm. Hey, do you want to play this game? I want to play. Do you want to watch this TV show? I want to watch. Um, And especially when they're younger, Hi-ho Cheerio is only fun for so long. Like, can we move up to Candyland? Mm-hmm. No, I want to play Hi-ho Cheerio. Okay. Like figuring out how to be present at, at the level of someone else's expectations or at the level that's meaningful to someone else. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, because I speak as someone, but a hard time doing that with my own kids. I wanted them to enjoy doing the same things I did. Um, I, and I suspect though, for kids, mental health and sense of go back to this identity thing, this sense that they are, uh, good enough as they are, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like if kid, if you want to do Play-Doh, 
and make cookies out of Play-Doh, you know what? We'll do that for the next two hours while Mm -hmm. dad would rather be watching basketball. (laughs) Um, But there's something I think affirming to kids. Well, it's affirming to adults for crying out loud, but I think it's deeply affirming to kids to figure, I mean, you've probably experienced that with your nieces and nephews. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They like spending time with Aunt Beth, but really spending time with Aunt Beth where Aunt Beth is entering into their world, ooh, that's validating. Uh, Yeah, yeah. That is 100% true. Uh, There were, I just want to go, back to um, my work as a social worker, which was those were the moments when I was most effective. And it wasn't limited to age, although I did tend to work with people that were younger than me, but it's that, it's that exact thing is sometimes it's physically getting at their level. Remember one kid um, at the juvenile detention center I was working was just having an absolute meltdown and no, none of the staff members could connect with them. And so I just came in and I just like got on the floor next to him and he responded and it was like, you know, I'm not this, this guru that, you know, solved all this kid's problems, but that was like the starting point was, oh, you're not a threatening staff member that can also just throw me back into, you know, isolation if I'm acting out. Um, you're someone that's willing to get at my level. So yes, I can enter into a conversation with you and then we can work on it from there. But it's also entering into the space of other individuals. They don't have to be younger than you, um, but just trying to understand where they're at and their certain difficult situation, um, then you can start to problem solve or create a, actually, I think that what you were saying is create like a legitimate connection with them is that Anthony, if you're having your eight-year-old read, you know, philosophy one-on-one books, Mm -hmm. it's not going to go great. But when you're willing to play hi-ho cheerio, Mm -hmm. um, you're having a connection that I think like reverberates through the years. Yeah. And same thing, Beth, like the stuff that you would do with your nieces and nephews now as they're five, six, seven, eight years old, Actually, because I have aunts and uncles that did those same things, I'm tight with them for decades to come because Mm -hmm. I remember the moments that they were with me where I needed them to be, I guess. Yeah. And what you were saying about you and Abby, I felt so convicted to go, to go back to an old school church term, (laughs) but I have had an organ right here if I could, (laughs) but I have had the exact same, uh, fights with my partner and the exact same conversations about like, we're watching a, a silly TV show and like one person's on the phone and you just want to be snippy and be like, you know, but I think what that, what, and I think your solution for dealing that is really good because I think, and this is a recurring theme on the podcast, just generally showing people grace, erring on the side of compassion is whether you're dealing with children or adults, uh, I think recognizing the tremendous shaping influence that phones and social media and technology have had on us and that none of us are immune from its addictiveness. All of us are struggling with the contrast of being present or being virtual, virtually present. Um, and so having that, um, tenderness, I guess, with people to, instead of just being snippy when, you know, as much as, a friend or partner could say to me, Hey, you know, you're be on your phone. I'm, I could be like, when I've had those fights where I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. You were on your phone for like 30 minutes There's earlier. And I didn't, I didn't back say to. something yeah. then, or like I would do the same thing or yeah. like, well, actually it's my sister and it's very important. Right. You know, like I think just understanding that we're in the grips of a really challenging age, um, just meaning era. And I think what you did is just like asking a gentle question instead of yelling at people, because that is always going to put people on the defense, whether they're kids or adults of just saying like, Hey, um, is that something, you know, I liked how the way, what, how did you phrase it? Anything good on there? Anything good on there. <laughs> it's gentle. It's, it's joking a little bit, but it does ask people to like take the responsibility of the question of like, and make the choice. Like, yeah, I think that's what we need to teach kids is like, you aren't enslaved to it and I'm not going to be mad at you for being on it, but like you get to choose, like, is this what you want to do right now? Or would you like to do something here with Mm -hmm. us? That's over here. And frankly, we need to have the same grace with adults for that as kids, I think. So Taylor, you're saying, if I would say to Sheila, why do you hate being with me? That wouldn't be the right approach. (laughs) I mean, try that first. (laughs) That's how I ended up with Who's your boyfriend on your phone, Sheila? Tell us. Yeah. It's it's hard. Choose your love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So I have this other thought as we're talking and that's social media does all these things that we've all talked about to form and shape people. But I think another thing social media does is confirm to us that we need to be extraordinary. Ordinary things don't get noticed on social media, right? So if you're going to take a picture, it's your most beautiful self. It's, 
your most bulging muscle. It's your best picture. It's your, you name it. Um, and especially now Facebook sends me all these videos. Like you start to scroll down. You don't see guys at the gym who um, look like me. You see guys at the gym who are ready to go put on a show. Right. And so they're extraordinary. And people will post their vacation pictures. It's extraordinary. You, you name it over and over. When my son likes to watch highlights of basketball games instead of watching the whole games. So what he sees are the extraordinary moments when John ja Morant makes a layup to win the game. Oh, did you see that dunk yesterday? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my. Um, you don't yeah. see the shot he missed right before that from three <laughs> feet away. Yeah. Um, you name it. You always see highlights when you do social media updates. Um, what, when you get even, is it GIFs or GIFs? Oh, that, that's a separate podcast. Yeah. Okay. Separate podcast. Whatever those moving pictures are. <laughs> those moving pictures. I always says think the old guy. <laughs> um, it, it's a scene from the movie. That's the most famous, right? Yeah. So I, I wonder if there's not a subtle message and I'm not saying this is intended by these mediums at all, but I think it was Marshall McLuhan talks about medium is the message that you constantly just see the best of everything. And I wonder if there's not an unspoken and probably even a pressure that that couldn't even be named, that if I'm going to do something, it needs to be amazing. And if it's not amazing, it's probably worthless. Mm. And I wonder if we've lost the love of the ordinary. Like for just me as a person, I can be ordinary and be okay. I don't have to have the best pair of shoes or the most amazing new haircut. I think I've proved that successfully for 53 <laughs> years. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't have to be this, that, that. I don't have to have a thousand likes or whatever it is. I can just be me. And that is okay. And I, I wonder, yeah, I don't know what any other way to say it, but I think we've lost an appreciation and a love of the ordinary which means especially for kids, but I think I feel it as an adult as well, mm -hmm. learning to be content with being ordinary and, and seeing that as not um, mundane or worthless or irrelevant, but actually seeing that as the foundational fabric of how society works. I mean, society unfolds through ordinary moments far and away above and beyond extraordinary moments. And so then let's talk about the importance of that. Going back to our discussion about how quarantines, when people were, were in quarantines, the bad things in them really expanded. You, you know how those bad things got there? Ordinary moments. Mm -hmm. And when they hit the extraordinary moment, it revealed who they were, but they were never going to be that at the drop of the hat. That was always going to be who they were after the ordinary moments. And so talking with kids, whether it's our own kids or our nieces and nephews or you name it, just affirming like if they did a race, they didn't have to win it. Mm -hmm. I think it's awesome that you are getting out there and running and getting to know people and exercising and facing your fears about competition. Mm. Um, when they write a, when they draw a picture, that's just horrible. Man, I love that you put the time and effort into drawing whatever that thing is that I'm putting on the refrigerator. <laughs> just, you know, what should we do today? Do you want to just hang out and play games rather than we have to go hike to the top of a mountain? Sorry, I, I, I wish I had a list written down, but just no, this idea great. that ordinary things and ordinary people are what make the world go around. Yeah. And it's okay. I uh, was going to share, I, I, this is resonating so much with me because I, I just think that's completely profound and completely true. And I will share how the impact of that as an adult is that, you know, if you, if people primarily experience you in your virtual form, we, I, I'm sure we all have Facebook friends or acquaintances. We don't really see much in real life. Um, and that's how they experience us. Then they are typically experiencing a curated version of you. Not many of us are tweeting about our fights with our partners and our low moments and our depression and our anxiety attacks and the parts of vacation that completely went to hell. Um, then what happens is without that real world interaction of friends and family around you who walk with you through the dark places, when you see those people in real life, if you are struggling, it is it, to me, I did, I've just experienced this recently. It's really lonely and isolating because people only see you through the filter of what they've seen on social media. And so their questions are always like, how perfect is your life right now? How perfect is the farm? How perfect is your relationship? Yep. You know, and you feel, you feel afraid to be real in those yeah. moments. You feel like you're shattering some illusion that people 
have of you, it makes, and I'm sure that is only intensified for kids who are learning who they are. Like you said, to be vulnerable with their peers or with their parents and say, I'm actually not okay. Uh, I don't feel pretty today. I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it might be. Um, I think that is really hard uh, even as an adult. And I think we should be really mindful. And I try to remind friends and family sometimes like if, if a friend is going through relationship troubles and they're like, well, your relationship is so perfect. It's like, no, we need to have these conversations with each other and make it okay to be vulnerable about our darkness because we all have it. And having an idealized version of our lives is not only damaging because it makes other people feel like they're failing. Like somehow you have an ideal life. Why can't I have that life? Yeah. It makes you feel like you're failing. You're not living up to your own ideal that you're projecting. And it makes you unhappy with the people around you because you think there must be something wrong with them if I'm not happier with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Look at that couple over there. Mm -hmm. They're knocking it out of the park. Why can't we do it? I'm clearly not the problem. Right. Right. No, that's true. It's totally true. Yeah. I, so you brought up basketball and of course I have many, you have thoughts. Yeah. I have thoughts, <laughs> but it's interesting. You meant, you mentioned the highlight thing and, um, what remind me if I don't get back to it. Cause when I talk about basketball, I may not get back to it at some point, but <laughs> should we um, just break this podcast yeah. up now? Yeah. The third? <laughs> Is, um, yeah, just what it, what it means to be human, I think. And you talk about ordinary and so much of being a human is just ordinary things. One, one to the other. Um, but highlight videos. And for me, I deeply love and appreciate basketball, but my first memory, uh, I think of when I really fell in love with basketball is when some family member had recorded on VHS, the 2000 or 2001 all-star game, Allen Iverson got the MVP, but there was a move in there. Allen Houston at the time he was a, a shooting guard for the New York Knicks. He made this move. It was like an in and out dribble between his legs into a step back three and he missed the shot. And as a kid, I was watching that and I had never seen that move before, but he missed the shot. So it was never going to make a highlight reel. Mm -hmm. And I think back to that now and I'm like, I am so glad that I had to sit down, rewind that VHS tape whenever I was going to watch it because kids never rewind after they've watched it. They always wait until they're about (laughs) to watch it (laughs) and experience like that full, the fullness of that and the fact that. I got to see him make this incredible move and it didn't lead to, to a make at the end, but I still got to see it. And then I could go out and try to do it. And hopefully mine would result in a mm-hmm. make. Um, but highlight videos and these curated um, examples that people give of their lives and stuff is, yeah, I think it's, it's cutting short, like what it means to be human. And so I think for me, if that's one of the things that I'll try to do for um younger generations, whether that's brothers or cousins or future children is like, just to allow them to experience like the, the, like what it means to be a human and to be a human with other humans flaws intact. So I was just proofreading a book for a friend of mine. You both might know who Carrie Waldy is, but he's writing a book about confronting your fears. And he had this really great chapter on before you're going to be good at something, you have to be okay with being bad. You're going to be bad at it before you're good at it. He's a flight instructor. So he talks about that in terms of flight instruction. <laughs> and it made me think that this last year coaching basketball, it was a particular group of kids where I found myself over and over saying to them, basketball is a game of mistakes. You have to understand this. Said so you guys watch highlight reels where everything everybody does is successful. Even the best shooter in the NBA shoots what? I don't know, 40%, let's just say, whatever it is. It depends three, on what position yeah. you're playing. That means they're missing six out of 10, six out of 10 times they fail. You only see, so you are going to miss a shot. You should have made basketball is a game of mistakes. You're going to throw a ball away. You're going to fail in a defensive assignment. The issue is not whether or not you'll make a mistake. Let's call that being ordinary. The issue is what you're going to do with it. Are you going to let it get you down? And are you going to put your head down and stop playing? Or are you going to learn from it and try harder? And at the end of the day, walk away with your head up, whether you win or lose basketball is a game of mistakes. And I feel that same way about life. Like the, the ordinary, whether it's the ordinary part or things that actually go bad, like sure there's times of success and we love those times, but that does not typically characterize our lives in most areas of our life. I would, yeah, yeah, I would love, so I love Kurt Vonnegut and um, he's always like a writer that like, if I could have like a dinner party, like, you know, hypothetical scenario, like someone from the the past hypothetical (laughs) dinner, he's, he's one of them who would be there because his, he as a, was quite a character as a person. 
But I would just love to read this short little anecdote from him because I think that just so it, it has always stuck with me. And I think it so is what we were talking about. So I'm just going to read this is from him. He said, when I was 15, I spent a month working on an archaeological dig. I was talking to one of the archaeologists one day during our lunch break, and he asked those kinds of getting to know you questions that you ask young people. Do you play sports? What's your favorite subject? And I told him, no, I don't play any sports. I do theater. I'm in choir. I play the violin and piano. I used to take art classes. And he went, wow, that's amazing. And I said, oh, no, but I'm not good at any of them. And he said something that I'll never forget and which absolutely blew my mind because no one had ever said anything like it to me before. I don't think being good at things is the point of doing them. I think you've got all these wonderful experiences with different skills and all that teaches you is teaches you things and makes you an interesting person, no matter how well you do them. And that honestly changed my life because I went from a failure, someone who hadn't been talented enough at anything to excel to someone who did things because I enjoyed them. I've been raised in such an achievement oriented environment. So inundated with the myth of talent Mm -hmm. that I thought it was only worth doing things if you could win at them. Mm. That's great. I think yeah. I might have posted that the other day, actually. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, I just, oh, I maybe I, thought I, I, had, I had read it in the past because I, I love him and I read a lot of his stuff, but I just, that has always stuck with me because yeah. I am, we've talked on past shows, but I'm a very kind of perfectionist person myself. I have high expectations for myself and I very competitive like Taylor is, you know, and I think maybe you a little bit, Anthony. And I, when I do badly, I feel badly. I think I'm not enough. And I prove myself by how I excel at anything that I do, whether it's sports or verbal, anything. And so I don't like doing things when I'm learning them. And I'm like, Oh, I'm so bad at this piano well, thing, you know? And, yeah. and so that is a yeah. lesson that I'm trying to learn is, is you're right. Not even like what Carrie was saying about you'll eventually get better. But maybe I won't get better. Like maybe I don't have an inherent talent for a particular thing, but <laughs> right. if I enjoy doing it, it's okay to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me think of something else here, like talent. We constantly talk about how can you be better or best or whatever, rather than just letting people enjoy doing a thing. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is power. Mm-hmm. We often raise our kids like be a leader. Okay. And that's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand. Um, but I, I, how many people, and how do I, think I say I it's better this? to be a servant than a leader. Yeah, like when I think with my pastor hat on again, like the Bible cautions about wanting to be a leader. It says, be a servant. Mm-hmm. And I think, how often do we talk with our kids about what it looks like to follow well? Mm-hmm. I have never owned a business. I have always been hired. I've always followed, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as a pastor, I guess I'm a leader in our church. But when I think of everything else that I've done, I have followed. Okay, for that business to be successful, the person who led that business needed good followers. Mm-hmm. Like not everybody plays the same role in life. And even those leaders hopefully are following someone else such that they're accountable and in submission, so to speak, to somebody else. Like I, I think it would be interesting to do a whole show. I'm, I'm afraid this is going to run too long, but ways in which we can talk about what we ought to be valuing or not that leading is bad, right? And not that excelling at something is bad, but what does it look like to go, oh, those are good, but this is also good. Mm-hmm. Just trying it is good. And learning how to be a good follower is good. And dot, dot, dot. Let's do that for another show sometime. I'm I'm in because, um, and, and we will round this out, but it, it brings up, I was thinking a lot about my relationship with my brother. So I'm the second oldest out of five. And I think that within my relationships with my brothers, I've achieved the most joy and experienced the most joy with and among them the last couple of years, even though I'm 32, I've had a brother, um, my entire life since I have one that's older than me, you can do the math and verify that. Um, but to now be in a position where I'm not only leading, I'm like learning Mm -hmm. from them has been like the, one of the greatest joys is that I have these brothers that that I learn from and I can submit to in certain areas of life as they have a deeper understanding of things that, that I don't in certain areas. And, um, it's a, when you become comfortable in that space, I think you find that life is a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. Can I give a final anecdote? I know I did with the last show too, but just struck me with this. So our, our youngest son, he, when he early on, he really struggled in school, but he's found his niche. His niche is that he's typically uh, a B, maybe a C student. Um, and you know what? I love that he is a B and C student because that's who he is. Like, if that's going to tail off, I'm going to go, dude, 
you're not being what you could be, but I don't need you to get A's. Uh, I think you might in a class or two, but I don't, I don't need you to do that. I don't need you to be the valedictorian. I just need you to be you. Like, just do you well. That's all I'm asking. And I can imagine if my expectation for my son is, if you're not valedictorian, I'm disappointed in you, that is crushing to a kid, right? And the same thing comes with sports. I, you don't need to be a leading scorer on the team. You don't need to lead any statistic. I'd like you to have fun playing basketball. I'd like you to make good friends while you do it. I'd like you to learn how to be a good sportsman. I'd like you to have fun. Now, if you put up numbers for something, awesome. But I don't need you to be the stat leader for something. I, I want you to be a quality young man where you are. What kind of job are you going to get after high school? I don't know. I want something that fits you. You don't need to make more than your neighbor. You don't need to but you just find somebody that brings you joy. Um, like those kinds of conversations where we allow people the space to flourish as they are meant to flourish, not as their neighbor is meant to flourish or somebody else's kid or even another one of your kids. Um, there's, there's something about just valuing that and a person that I think matters a lot.